everybody. Adam Cook from Campus Inc. in the NIL Show. Great episode for you today. We are joined by Vic Denardi, who is a former compliance enforcer, which is what we like to call him for the NCAA. He also spent some time in the NFL and uh, lends a lot of his wisdom and experience around some of the challenges that not only the governing bodies face in a time where uh, legislation and interim policies have changed, uh, but also you know ways for schools to kind of manage some of the uncertainty. So I hope you enjoy the episode. To me, fair market value is what anybody's willing to pay. So if somebody's willing to pay Bryce Chung a million dollars to come and do ads for Dr. Pepper or whatever local company, good for him and good for the school and good, good for everybody making it out. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the NIL show. Adam Cook here with Sean Ellenby. Stephen Farrig is out uh, this week. So we are uh, really excited to be joined today by Vic Denardi. Vic has a a wonderful background, um, having spent time in the NFL, having spent time um, in multiple tech startups around the NIL space, as well as with the NCAA uh, as a compliance um, uh, enforcer, is that is that your your title when you, when you're in compliance? They call you an enforcer. Is that how it works? <laughs> they they did technically. I, I know we did shy away from that. Uh, I, I've been called the suit from a many places throughout my my many stops, so we always shied away from that. But uh, I, I did a presentation to an NFL club, and and we specifically dressed down, and and sure enough. Uh, the GM got up there and introduced me as the suit from New York. I was like, oh, man, that's, that's a lot of hard work. It's just been thrown out in about three seconds in my introduction to the team. So, right. yeah, enforcers was kind yeah. of the rule. No badge, no nothing. We, you know, every once in a while I lobbied for a badge or a ticket book, but no, yeah. any of those fun things. We just, you know, you wouldn't put an enforcer on a business it. card either. So, you know, maybe LinkedIn is where the place to just, you know, own up to it. I love it. You're, you're I love like, it. you're like, if I'm not getting paid enough to be the suit from New York, right? Yeah, <laughs> at that time for sure, I, I was a low level guy, and I got to go to the to the, the the teams that nobody really wanted to go to, and just kind of give this presentation out. And I got you know quarterbacks and coaches and owners staring at me, and boom, the suit from New York. I was like, oh man, I don't even think I owned a suit at that point. What's the Roger Goodell suit? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I love it. Well, well, Vic, we're we're really excited. Um, obviously, you know, very grateful to have have your time, uh, be able to chat from your experience. Um, but we always try to kick it off with with kind of a fun question, right? You spent a lot of sp- time in the NIL space. Um, what would be your like dream slam dunk NIL deal for Vic Denardi today? Like, what? Who would you want to sign a restaurant NIL deal with? uh this afternoon if you could are you putting yourself in you know 43 year old vic shoes or you know back to 19 year old vic when i was when dealer's I was choice back at st. John's? dealer's choice i <laughs> always dreamed at st john's and, and this was the one that couldn't be now i was at st john's before they had dorms so me and five guys split an apartment in queens which was very nice Ooh. and, and going through we kind of had cost of attendance before that was really a thing uh but we always dreamed if we had like just a little bit extra scholarship money that there'd be a pallet of beer in that corner every single month being dropped off. So <laughs> I know you, I know you can't get a Bud Light deal or a Coors Light deal, but that's that's probably eighteen-year-old Vic's uh, dream right there. I guess I should say twenty-one-year-old Vic's dream because you know I yeah, really thought I was twenty. <laughs> yes. uh, but, but probably some of those things that you know I don't know if I have a specific one. I, I guess everybody would say Chick Fil A, which you know I didn't get till I moved out here to the Midwest, oh, yeah. being a New Yorker forever. Uh, but going around and talking to a lot of schools and campuses administrators, that, that's what I hear is the number one 
uh, deal that the kids love is just going to a local burrito store and, hey, whenever you're in here, just tweet that you're here and your burritos and nachos are free. As an offensive lineman, I don't think I could go wrong with, with, with any of those kind of <laughs> yeah. Here's just a free meal whenever, I, you know, obviously I was there before social media, but just so, somehow plug the local little deal and, and getting a freebie <laughs> would be great. So uh, if, if I, I can't do it. the Bud Light one, maybe Chick-fil-A or, or whatever, you know, try to plug a local business for sure. I tell you what, I'd be I'd be having breakfast study hall at Chick Fil A. I'd be having lunch study hall at Chick Fil A. Yes. I mean, I I could tweet I could tweet, hey, checking in to Chick Fil A all day. Give me a little bit of extra Chick Fil A sauce to, on the side. I got to introduce my dad to it a few years ago. We actually I'm from New York originally, came out to Indianapolis about nine years ago. I have a sister in Pittsburgh, and we went to a, a Pirates game. The whole kind of family met up. And they had the Chick-fil-A truck there, like the food truck, just yeah. giving out sandwiches at this pregame. My dad's like, I don't understand. What's the lore? We're just like, just try, Dad. Just try. And then yeah. Next, yeah. three later, he's like, these are pretty good. You know, can I get another one? <laughs> I love it. Guys, I uh, Chick-fil-A, I, I went to Maryland at Chick-fil-A in our student union. Or at Maryland, in the student union, there was a Chick-fil-A. And I, when I was in college, I got to the point where I couldn't even look at the Chick-fil-A. If I looked at it, it was game over. I had to go. Like, as soon as I smelled it, as soon as I 100%. looked at it, I had to go. And then later on, we had, we always had it in our press box for football games and basketball games. And so uh, a free Chick-fil-A before the game was always great. It's it's always a brilliant it, it's a brilliant move for, for restaurant franchises, right? Like, get the students hooked early. This was yes. it was always like our as a coach it was always our pregame meal because it was like part of our little you know on campus thing. Then you get to a place where you're like, man, I've had a hot chicken sandwich four days in a row. I probably should <laughs> switch to a salad. Well, and now they're doing the they're, thing where they're like, it, like if you miss two, if you miss two free throws, like somebody at the line in the second half at a basketball game for college students, then they'll get a free Chick Fil A sandwich or something. It's like yeah. brilliant promotions. I remember, I think the first one that opened up in New York City was actually on the campus of NYU. And I remember they had to cut down because people were faking NIU student cards in Manhattan <laughs> to go to Chick-fil-A. And then there's a few there and they have to actually like cordon the line. I've been told because it, it stretches multiple blocks in the city. So you have to, yeah. to get them away and make sure nobody gets run over standing in the middle of the road. And then a few of the things I always heard football recruiting wise is places in like, you know, outside kind of the traditional Chick-fil-A footprint that boosters are trying to bring Chick-fil-A to those schools to get Southern kids to go there because they're like, that's, that's right. one of the things that kids go there. Huh. So it's there, it's Whataburger, it's in and out burger that, you know, some boosters are trying to bring close to campus. Love so it. when a kid comes out to visit, they really want to go to that school. So and uh, is a big thing, it. but it's amazing what all goes into recruiting. Yeah. Yep. Well, well Vic, tell us, that's awesome. so tell us, so you were offensive lineman at St. John's and then, you know, you went, you went on to the NFL um, walk us through a little bit of what you did for the NFL. Um, you know, you were in security, you were in compliance. You just told us a little story about uh, having the moniker, the suit from New York. So tell us a little bit about what you did for the NFL and how that bridged to, over to the NCAA. Yeah, uh, so from graduating at St. John's, I actually uh, I was a graduate assistant. So I coached football at D2 for a little bit, kind of bridged those few years. Kind of realized that wasn't for me. I enjoyed the 90-hour weeks and, you know, all those other things. But uh, <laughs> actually, before even security, I got a really entry-level job doing data entry at the NFL, making 12 bucks an hour. That was only supposed to be a three-month job that I stretched that into a year. And then a security job came open that was – I was the football guy in the security department. So it was a small department. And, hmm. like, I was really brought in to kind of – it was a bunch of former FBI agents and, and state uh, – police officers and whatnot that were a great group of guys and ladies. 
but I, I was a football person, so I helped decipher the playoffs. So help, you know, my VP would call me in every year about the beginning of December and say, who could host a playoff game? And I'd go through all the scenarios and I'd be like, well, you know, <laughs> the Jets could host it, but like four different things have to happen. Vic, I don't care what can happen. As long as there's a chance, I need to know about it. I'm like, it's eight teams <laughs> have to tie, boss. It can still happen. So he's planning for all that. Uh, eventually, I got to handle the security aspects for a Super Bowl credentialing. Uh, so for the Super Bowl, non-media, when I was there, again, about 10 years ago or so, we issued 35,000 credentials, and all of them had an FBI background check. So wow. I work with FBI headquarters to make, to facilitate all those checks, and then the FBI or whoever was in charge would could yay or nay whoever got a credential. So that'd be fun on, on <laughs> the Super Bowl to tell somebody, hey, Sean, you're here, but for some reason I can't tell you, your credentials <laughs> yet. So um, thanks a lot. Go home. Uh, yeah. That made me a really popular person at the league office too. People at around yeah. that time running up to me, me all their sins and, and asking if I was if they were going to get to work or not, which I never had an answer for. Uh, my main responsibility is I did all the background checks and all the players who went to the combine too. So you know, right after the season ended or the college season ended, when the, those invites came out, all the players that got an invite to the com- combine got a, also an invite to fill out some back where, background questionnaire forms. Uh, that I had processed and reported out to every team. And they're really, it was a standard background that any employee got. So nothing, there was no people following kids around, no right. things. We, we checked out those things. And uh, like anything else, there's laws and HR guidelines, what we couldn't, couldn't report. But so from January until the day of the draft, I was running all those backgrounds, making sure the clubs had all the updated information, asking uh, answering all the questions that the clubs had, which was a lot on some background guys and uh, yeah. going through that. So I, I learned a lot. My bad joke is I probably saw everything short of murder in, in those background reports. <laughs> and yeah. and I learned a lot what really teams uh, wanted to know, obviously the, the serious yeah. crimes and those things. And I, and I kind of started when, when Roger took over as commissioner. So we all know those times and what happened there, but the amount of teams that really cared about uh, parking tickets or speeding tickets yep. and how many mm-hmm. they got and and, you know, there was there were some teams that, hey, if they're all clustered together at one point, hey, maybe he got a new car and just like going fast and that happened. So that, that's his excuse. And others teams like, well, he's got one every year for five years. So at least he doesn't do it all at once. He spreads it out. And just <laughs> the insight and all the teams that like trying to read into these things and and, and all that was, was really interesting from that level. Uh, but as the football guy you in want- a land full of guys, sorry. Sean freeze up on us. I think we lost him, but I, oh, go ahead, Sean, you're back. Sorry, I'm back. I was gonna say, I was gonna, I was gonna say, if uh, I am sure teams like if they wanted a guy bad enough, they could find ways to work around those speeding tickets or or stretch it so they're like, oh, we can get around this way or the other way. For sure, and and there'd be times where I mean, I had I had teams call me up and and ask me for a detailed background report and. Uh, gave it to him and either the security person yeah. or the GM would be like, man, they're off my board, just off my yeah, board. Yeah. And then I, I would, I would sit in the office and I had, a, I had a great job on draft day, sitting at my desk, watching it on TV, like everybody else did, but had to be there to answer the phone in, in case of that. And also if there wasn't a lot of trades for other players, but you know, trades involving players, they'd want a background report, especially if some things were over, mostly making sure that a player wasn't going to come in suspended or lose some things. And, and the amount of times mm-hmm. on day two, I, I worked at what is a two day draft or a three day draft. You know, you get a call on day three from somebody else and that same guy who told you he was off the board and they drafted the guy in the fifth round. And I'd be like, yep. hey, what happened? I thought he was off your board. 
Well, he was off my board in round two. Round five is a whole <laughs> different story. Uh, he, he came back on the board. Um, and he just, yeah, having teams call me up and ask me, and like, hey, you know, we're asking you this in confidence. You know, don't – I have no vested interest who you draft, so I'm not running and right. telling every other club that, that you're looking on the backgrounds of these. But uh, that, that was a really interesting job there. Uh, we mentioned the suit from New York. I did policy and procedure demonstrations to the club, so it would go out and tell them, the fun things about the personal conduct policy, the gambling policy, all the things they couldn't do, but also got to tell them about a bunch of great programs that the league had that was supportive of them. Uh, but again, those times were a lot of uh, either 8 a.m. first thing in the morning, and that's what everybody likes is a nice HR yep. meeting with, with the guy from, from the league office. I had few that were right after meals or right before meals uh, in team meetings. So those are the ones I got a lot of questions on when guys didn't want to go to practice or whatnot, just, <laughs> just stalling out the coach getting really frustrated. I had one team that was 8.30 on their last night of mini camp, and I was the last thing Oof. separating them from a month and a half off. Uh, so I got there, and, and my counterpart from the club was like, I already cut out half your slides. I covered them already today, which was <laughs> yeah. great. And then I had, you know, three star players about, you know, 10 minutes into the presentation start standing up and putting their backpacks up on the back of the room and giving me the old, hey, uh, look at the time, look at the time, yeah. and yeah. wrap that one up really quick. Uh, but then working with, you know, uh, like I said, FBI agents and law enforcement, I was never going to rise up too high in a security role. And I was told that from day one. So yeah. I was able to transition to a role at, at the NCAA. I turned college as my bad joke, my bad dad joke. Um, <laughs> and got to join what was called the football development group, uh, kind of at its infancy. And as part of enforcement and the enforcers, but I really wasn't somebody who came and investigated a case from head to toe and brought it to the committee of infractions. Uh, I was used as a resource for the club. So I, I liaison with the Pac-12 and the MAC primarily, but really all schools and every level of football from high school, college, obviously professional with, with my contacts there and educated them about the rules, but really was a sounding board for coaches and administrators and student athletes to tell us, you know, what rules were working, what weren't. Hey, you guys, you're focused way over here as the NCAA sometimes does, and you guys are way off base. That, that yeah. stuff doesn't matter to recruiting, doesn't matter to coaching. You guys need to point your eyes here and see what's going on. So uh, to do that and, you know, give coaches, like I said, a voice in the rules and also let us know some bad, bad actors, what's going on and what we should be looking at there. I think it's it's so interesting. I You know, as Sean and I and, and, you know, our team kind of continues to dive into working across, you know, so many more universities in different conferences and you know, state lines that have different uh, either understandings or applications of NIL legislation. You know, I, I, I just have so much um, more appreciation and context, I think, around, you know, the, the university compliance um, directors as well around like, okay, this is a whole new ball game that we have to dive into. And there's so many competing priorities and interpretations and things. And I, I, I love just, you know, hearing straight from the horse's mouth, your, your experience around, look, it, it's not just saying, you can't do that or I'm coming in to, to cut your knees out from under you, but so much more around, Hey, here, here's, here's how we can apply this or here's where we should be focusing or um, you know, here's some cool programs that we have in place that can actually help you. I, I, I love that kind of approach to it. And um, I think that's where, you know, a lot of maybe the NCAA gets a, a pretty bad rap or maybe even compliance directors at institutions get a bad rap, but that's not, not what they're there for. So I, I appreciate that perspective. For sure, and, and definitely, I, I learned a lot, and I had great respect for. I mean, when I was in, when I was playing and coaching, you, you, compliance was the last person you wanted to see. You're always in trouble, and and starting <laughs> this role in, in enforcement, yeah, 
when the, I, that compliance person came, especially when I was a coach, it was like, oh man, did I fill my forms yep. out right? Who did I call when I shouldn't? Uh, or it's going to be, you know, I just, you know, I worked all day, had a three hour practice, and now I have to do an hour long rule seminar about yep. something that we're never, I was coaching D2. So we were never going to break those rules. Uh, so it, it is an extremely tough job. And, and you're dealing with coaches who, you know, can be, you know, ornery on the best of days. And, you know, so most of the time you were not delivering good news. And that was, Again, when I became an enforcer to start, I was calling up these schools cold and say, hey, I'm in the enforcement department. I want to come out and visit you and take an hour of your time, coach. And nope. Yep. I, I have no desire to have enforcement on my campus no matter what. And, you know, I, I don't break the rules. I'm like, coach, hey, everybody breaks the rules. The manual is about this thick. Everybody, <laughs> yeah. everybody breaks. You're going to dial a kid at the wrong time. You just, no, I, I break all the rules all the time, too. And I just, I don't know. It. Yep. So some of them didn't well, do and that. And, you know, bad news. And there's rules, but then there's also the interpretation of the rules, which I think is what like drives me the most crazy and probably drives compliance directors the most insane is that, yes, there is a set of rules that are in place, but we can all interpret them a different way. And every school does. How, when you were at the NCA, how did you guys navigate that? It was always a push because we in enforcement felt the same thing. We'd have a case and, you know, there's there's a whole department of 50 people that just interpret the rules. And at times I can be a very black and white person and just mm-hmm. it's a rule or it isn't a rule. And you do learn that there are shades of gray and that's where coaches live. And uh, so, it, you know, we there are times we had a full blown case going to the end and somebody in that, that department would say, no, we don't think it's a violation. Here's why. And that was a lot of the mm-hmm. questions I fielded, too, is is all compliance starts local. So the, those compliance directors have, have a horrible job because they're the ones who kind of first rule on something. So if a coach comes to you and says, can I do this? You're the school compliance person is kind of the first one that says, nope, that's impermissible. Or they can say, yes, it is permissible with the caveat that if it's deemed impermissible later, now the wrath of the NCAA is going to come down on you. So they have to be very careful in those rulings. But of course, the coach is always the one that says, yeah, it's permissible or at my old school, I did this, or how come this coach is tweeting about this? Mm-hmm. So it, it goes through a long bureaucracy throughout the end game. Uh, but it's it kind of, you know, when nobody can see the right thing, or the, I don't say the right thing, but the same thing on, on an issue, it it gets kind of crazy, and you know, everybody's very protective of their stance at all levels, from the compliance director to the coach to the AD to the enforcement person to, you know, the president of the NCAA. Everybody thinks their view is right, and that's how we do it. So it did kind of get maddening and just trying to figure out, well, what the heck is the rule here? Because to me, it's pretty straightforward. And I mean, there are times where we change the rule and they'd go back and, you know, someone would find an interp from 1987 and be like, well, we want to kind of do this. And like, We're trying to live in the 21st century and you're going by yeah. 19th century. <laughs> yeah. So my heart, oh, go ahead, Adam. I, well, I, I, I kind of want to get into to, to the nitty gritty into the meat of it here, because this is, you know, we're, you're talking about interpretation. You're talking about, you know, old rules versus new rules. And we've said this before on the show. We say it a lot around our office. But, you know, how, how often do you get to kind of live through a, a time where not just one rule has tweaked, but all of a sudden there has been massive upheaval of, you know, l- large scale uh We'll call it legislation. It's not technically legislation, but um, we'll call it legislation um, it, the way that the NCAA approaches it. I, I think a lot's been said around how they handled things immediately after July 1st, 2021, right? Um, kind of taking their step back, um, maybe being a little bit more vague. 
I'd love just to kind of armchair quarterback it with you, having having been with the NCAA. Like, what would you have done differently, maybe, you know, in, in terms of the implementations right away um, from a governing body like the NCAA, you know, trying to manage all the new stuff literally overnight? Yeah, it was a tough time. I, I was there for that. We were there, everybody was living it and trying to figure out, you know, what was going on. Totally. I mean, to, to, to really armchair it is to go back a year and a half when the, when the you know NIL committee was formed and and like you kind of said, we'll, we'll call it legislation, uh, and it's not an easy topic. And I don't want to you know come up like bashing anybody, but you know they no, of course not. They didn't come up with any legislation. They didn't come up with a policy. And, and rock in a hard place doesn't even come close to you know the circumstance around because like you kind of mentioned before, there's state laws firing off at the hip that don't know what they're doing that are just changing the laws. And, you know, it's easy to say, well, then you just sue a state and say, hey, don't come in here and tell us how to do our business. We're this business. And, you know, I've kind of said that for a while because for years I've been asked by college athletes, when am I going to get paid? Well, you mm -hmm. know, going in, you're not going to get paid. You know, mm -hmm. so if, if you want to be a regular student, be a regular student. Uh, obviously, it's not the climate we're in now. Uh, I, I kind of think this is the best they could do. Uh, I mean, many times they came to us and said, what do you think about this policy? And I, I think the toughest one is the no recruiting inducements um, mm -hmm. because everybody knows everything done in college sports is all about recruiting. There's mm -hmm. not a single aspect of your program that does not have something to do with recruiting until this year. So I think last year, July one, we, we know that NIL came to be in, in the form that we're at still the interim NCAA policy. And I think about a month later, coach Saban gets up at the sec media day and says, Bryce Young has a million dollars in NIL deals. <laughs> A month into it. And until this year, I mean, I'm not in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, so maybe he's got a lot of deals down there. And this year he's got the Dr. Pepper thing, which is obviously, you know, great money and a good opportunity for him. But, I mean, and that's his own private business. Why is Coach Saban out there saying that at, at media days? Because he yep. wants every high school senior, high school junior in the world to know, you come to Alabama, you're getting million-dollar deals. And there's some people at the NCAA who are like, oh, this isn't going to be involved in recruiting. And, you know, it was, it was just a, a face slap moment. Yeah. Um, and then if we want to go really down the rabbit hole and tie that into the transfer portal, which was, you know, an, another whole thing that wasn't going to be involved in recruiting and this wasn't going to have anything to do with each other. And it's like, everybody take a breath and step back and, and just see where we're going. And, you know, I don't think no policy is kind of a, a bad thing. I was very much, you know, there was talk about a third party administrator and I didn't know how that would work. I don't, you, you can't start setting terms of deals and to say what fair market value is. Cause to me, fair market value is what anybody's willing to pay. So if somebody's willing to pay Bryce Young a million dollars to come and do ads for Dr. Pepper or whatever local company, good for him and good for the school and good, good for everybody making it out. So like I said, you know, again, we talked about before my, you know, ideal deal from what I heard from most schools, the average deal is between 500 and a thousand dollars for a student athlete. Obviously there are outliers on both directions, but you know, a lot of student athletes are getting some free gear and free burritos and, and very happy with that. Uh, and we don't have to, you know, freak out that, some student athletes in all sports. And it's not just football or basketball. It's been great for Olympic sports. It's been great for women's sports. A lot of women are out there getting fantastic NIL deals. And, you know, the world has kept spinning. I know a lot of people thought <laughs> on July 2nd, college sports wasn't going to implode. We can go back and start cashing receipts and just saying who thought that college sports was going to end. And this was, you know, the eighth sign of the apocalypse. But we're still here. Someone argue it's better we than are. ever. And we're still going. Yeah. How how much because we deal with this a lot and and have to have a lot of these conversations. I think I'm we're all pretty 
proud here of the solution that, that we have around, you know, uh, holistic offerings for athletic departments. And you just talked about it there a little bit, you know, we're seeing a lot of benefit in Olympic sports and women's sports. And, you know, it's not just about, uh, you know, basketball and football, how much of some of those conversations or maybe the approach of, of that, interim policy or future policies do you think is really focused on oh geez this is going to be a problem at football and so let's solve that and just kind of not worry about what happens at maybe some of the other non-revenue sports versus look because you know essentially this is the problem with the governing body right you're trying to come up with solutions for everybody um and that's a challenging thing to do so how much of that conversation is balanced around this is going to be a problem of football. We can't go down this path, even though it's right for everybody else versus this is the right thing to do for a college athletics program. We're going to do it and football is going to have to figure it out or basketball is going to have to figure it out or what have you. Yeah, that, that, that's a big topic of discussion because not even, you know, amongst sports, but we have three levels. We have division one, division two, II, division three. So this policy was for all levels. So you're trying to, make a policy fit for the division three player who's, you know, always been there to have fun and just, you know, get some financial aid. And, you know, most of my friends play D3. I think D3 sports are fantastic, but to try to have a policy that works for them and for the Bryce Young's of the world is really tough to do. And then, you know, so it's splitting the baby in many different parts is tough. Uh, and so that was a lot of it. I know a lot of the discussion was on, you know, student athletes a year ago. It's still kind of popular. I'll date myself, but you know, having a Twitch account and just playing video games that mm-hmm. were having a YouTube account, just monetizing that, which was very big. It had nothing to do with their athletic prowess, but you know, it all got tied up because they were a student athlete at X University. And that's where, you know, credit division two and division three, they were kind of the leaders in the space and said, our, our student athletes don't have full scholarships. They have financial aid and they need ways to go out and, you know, supplement their income. And this is, you know, nobody's really bribing, you know, a division two player to come to a school or, you know, setting up deals for them. So let's get this through. And yeah, you're right. Part of it was, you know, some D one D one players and dragging their feet. And we all kind of know the conferences that, you know, again, football's the cash cow. Everybody's looking for an advantage. You know, you have a 14 playoff. So those spots are very coveted and very, very wealthy. And so everybody's kind of looking at it from that point of view. And, and that's where, again, I give them some credit. You know, maybe hands-off was the best policy. There's a lot of talk of guardrails and rules and whatnot. And and the NCAA showed a lot of restraint for once that just said, hey, we're going to have two tenants, no pay-for-play and no recruiting inducements. And, again, we can knock both of those down really easy, though, too, because everything has to do with recruiting. And it's all pay-for-play. I mean, you guys as an NIL company, me when I was working for an NIL company, we're not looking to set up deals with the biochemistry major. You know, good for right. them, but, you know, they, they're – they're not selling materials. So if you're not on the team, that's going to affect your standing in the marketplace. But, you know, those, those are two, if you're going to have two rules, I think those were two pretty good ones to have. And uh, we can get to enforcing them, which is a whole other story though. That's what I was, that's what I was going to say is yeah, yeah. have the rules, but who's enforcing those rules um, when it comes down to it. And, I, I want to ask my, you this. My, Go ahead. I was going to say my former enforcers are, are, are trying their best and it, it's, it's all yeah. rules. Honestly, I, I got a lot of tips. And before this, we always had tips that a player got paid under the table or, or now that yeah. he's getting money to transfer this NIL deal is really phony. And, you know, but then again, how do you go and prove it? Which is a complete different thing to do and very difficult sure. to do. And, and, you know, they're not a, just a bunch of people at Indy sitting on their hands doing nothing. They're, they're actively going out there and, 
and asking the tough questions, but there's only so much they can do. And, you know, at some point you just got to move on and it's tough for the public to see, but it's, it is what it is. Well, and we've, you know, we've chatted before too, like we've had guests on the show, you know, who, who are practicing attorneys and they talk a lot about where almost that like jurisdiction stops, right. With, with the NCAA, like, you know, you, there's no subpoena power. There's no, like at, at some point you're like, look, we're doing our best to enforce these. And somebody saying this is happening is different than proving that it's happening. And to your point, Vic, there's only so much we can do and we're going to do our darndest. Right. Um, but it's, it's, it's a challenging, it's a challenging, uh, uh, a task for sure. Go ahead, Sean. I know you had a good question. Yeah, no, Vic, I, I, I was curious. I want to hear your thoughts. Um, one of the things I've been hearing recently from some coaches at the high level, especially on the basketball side is that they want to see uh, players start getting a cut from some of those preseason tournaments that they're involved in, or even the NCAA tournament, um, seeing a cut of whether it's a bonus of making the tournament or whatever it might be. Do you see that as being a viable thing in the future? Uh, something that could happen? That, that That's going to be a tough one. That's you're getting really into the employment phase and that's, you know, I am no lawyer, thank goodness, but that's where it really starts getting difficult. If you are an employee of the university and how things happen. But I, I do see, you know, part of, you know, living in that world and talking to coaches and you guys know is there, there's a million and one loopholes to, to kind of really kick open the door. So what's to say that the sponsor of one of those preseason tournaments or even a football bowl game now starts entering into an NIL deal with the whole team. And is mm-hmm. that, so that's how kind of you get around. That. And I know uh, there's talk about some golfers kind of doing that and the live tours kind of mm-hmm. new and out there and trying to get some, some college golfers out there and, you can play in the professional tournaments as an amateur, but how do, how do I pay them? So maybe it's it's a higher sponsorship deal. There's a lot of talk about, you know, putting money into some sort of escrow account and paying out after they've graduated. That was, I don't say a trick, but that was an old thing that was always talked about before NIL came to be of, you know, we're just going to store the money aside. And so you're not getting it when you're an amateur, but when you, you leave college, you can get it. So those type of things are, are going to be really interesting. And then, it, I mean, it comes all the way down to, you know, you start doing NIL deals on official visits. You know, is that a way to get more students to visit your school? If you're a local car dealer and you want a quarterback and, hey, I'll pay for you to come out here to shoot a commercial for me or whatnot or how, however else I want to do it, and that gets you on campus. And while you're here, you can go and tour the campus, see whoever you want. But, you know, that, that's a way for me to fly you around and, and do the things. And that's, mm-hmm. you know, what the NIL has really done is gotten the boosters. They were always involved, but, you know, more involved in the recruiting process and having them more of a say of, who gets recruited to school and how it happens. The bowl thing's really interesting to me. I, I, I think that would be really cool. Like say uh, a team's in the Outback Bowl, you know, Out, Outback Steakhouse is spending a ton of money already to sponsor that bowl. Imagine, I don't know, you have what, two weeks between the bowl and, and the game or the, when it's announced and the game actually happening, if you could get the kid in a commercial or, or some promotional items, that'd be pretty cool. I don't know. I, I would love to see bowls do that. I think it'd be awesome. And they already have the merchandise room or whatnot, so, you know, they get yeah. the bowl gifts and whatnot, so the, those things. But, I mean, it's going to be really a tool for somebody who's going to skip the bowl game. If I was going to skip yeah. out the bowl game because I'm going to go pro or whatnot, now do you say, hey, $10,000, come and shoot this commercial, and you have to play in the game. Yeah. You know, does that like, okay, you know, now, now maybe I'll play in this game. Now now it's worth Keep it for me to, you know. In. Yeah. yeah. So I, I think those are things that, are, that definitely could come being in, the, in a few years, especially the, 
the basketball and the football spaces for sure. Yeah. Do you see, you know, we talked about boosters getting a lot more involved. They obviously have, have always been involved, but now it's, you know, more above the table. And a really interesting thing that I think we've watched pan out on the collective and booster side is at SC, right? You, you have this collective that's spinning up that's student-led that the institution maybe isn't super on board with and are asking them to not, but because they're, you know, entirely outside of, of the scope of the NCAA as well as the institution, they're like, hey, we're going to do our thing, right? Um, so I, I just think that's created a really interesting conundrum for for the NCAA trying to figure out, okay, how do we hold collectives responsible when, when maybe they are blatantly acting against the wishes of the institution and doing things that maybe aren't, you know, compliant? Um, who, who do we hold accountable to that? Do you, do you see maybe collectives or, or boosters almost folding back into the institutions uh, in a more official capacity in the future so that they can come under the umbrella of, of some of the, the, the policies that the NCAA has in, in place? Yeah, I, I think that's one of the things that as, as schools look at it, we're still only whatever, 16 months in a little less than that. Yeah. Uh, everybody's still trying to figure everything out. And so we're, we're going through these steps and, you know, pat myself on the back and some of my former coworkers, we're, we're definitely some of the people out there shouting from the rooftop in that building that, we didn't call them collectives, but groups of boosters are going to form together to totally. get out deals. And, and, and honestly, they're probably a lot more, like you said, above board than, than we thought they'd be. They're out there really getting deals for the student athletes and, and bringing them in and, and using all those new forms of technology to do it. But, yeah, it's it's an excellent point. If you have this rogue group that has nothing to do with the school, that the school's done everything they can to educate, to, you know, educate their student athletes. But, again, you, you walk a fine line saying, you know, I don't know if it's a school I can tell you, Adam, hey, don't go do business with that company. That's not your business to say. If it's a legitimate company out there that's going to pay you to work, that's, you know, you, as a student athlete, you're going to probably just look at them funny and then you're going to risk the student athlete going to the transfer portal if they're really good and that's not what you want to. So, and if you go to that, you know, that entity, the collective, the business or whatever, because it doesn't have to be a collective. It could be just a, a one booster with, you know, some sort of business that they want to advertise or just a group of people that just want to do what they want to do. And this is always been the case. If you get a boost, a rogue booster five years ago, 10 years ago, and we've all seen the 30 for 30s out there doing stuff. Yeah. You know, the school's going to be saying, don't you do that? But I can't tell you what to do. So the, the biggest yep. tool the NCAA has is disassociation. So they could tell you to disassociate with that person. I think as a compliance person, as a school, you, you lay out all the steps you've already taken, like the USC has done. We've in public, we've said we don't want to have anything to do with them. You know, we've tried to educate them. We've tried to educate our student athletes on what to do. So you're going to get two scenarios. Either you're going to say, yeah, I disassociate from that group. And the group can be like, okay, that's great. We were never really associated with you to begin with. And you can't tell me as this company that I can't do business with Adam and Sean because, you know, you're not in that business, you know. And so there was always the things about taking tickets away and those things. So some of these collectives of boosters, don't care about that anymore, quite honestly. Or some of them are just going to be looking to itch for a fight saying, you can't take my tickets away. I'm doing a legal thing. I am a legal entity. I'm allowed under my state law to enter into agreement with these student athletes. I'm not breaking any law. You know, I'm breaking your policy, but that's not my policy. So uh, it, it's a really tough position that, you know, everybody's at, you know, the NCAA, the schools, the student athletes, these collectives that want to do things the right way. 
Uh, and even the ones that aren't doing things, quote unquote, the right, right way, that's just the NCAA's right way. Their right way and their business right way are, are, are completely different things. Uh, so I see some of it being folded possibly under the auspices of the school. Uh, I mean, you're going to get into things, group licensing, using marks mm-hmm. and trademarks and some of those carrots that the schools have to make their offers really more attractive for the student athletes. And they can shut out some, some rogue companies that way. But from an NCAA point of view and a, and a compliance point of view, yeah, it's very difficult that, you know, we don't have a lot of tools to go after them. Do you see in terms of uh, in terms of states having different rules? Um, I, I'll give you an example. Some of the schools that we work with in certain states, they can retweet what we're doing. Uh, they can support their athletes. They can support NIL stuff. There's some other schools in other states that they can't even acknowledge us that we even exist. Um, do you see this model where it's state by state by state continuing? Or is the NCAA going to be able to somehow work in a blanket model that all states can follow, all schools can follow, and everybody's on that same plane, following the same rules? Yeah, I mean, that that model you're talking about, I know the NCAA has worked to try to go get a federal law that would encompass all the states. Not to get political, but I would hope any Congress has a lot better things on their plate to do than worry about. (laughs) That's fair. That's totally fair. Uh, but the state-by-state model is very, you know, difficult and cumbersome. And it, it's very interesting now that you're seeing some of the first states to implement NIL rules are the first states to come back and repeal their laws. Yeah. And be like, we, we've seen, I mean, that was one thing the NCAA policy did that no state thought was going to happen. It was just kind of the hands-off approach. We got these couple rules and that's it. So, yeah. you know, quite a few states have just said, nope, I want my law off the books because my school's now at a disadvantage for, you know, the, these type of things. And, you know, there's... Yeah. I think Oregon, when it first came out, said that you, you couldn't lose, use the school's logo and trademarks in any deal. And the school's like, we kind of don't like that. And mm-hmm. so they, I know they amended it and, and cut it back a little bit. But yeah. that, that's been a tough talking to a lot of compliance people in, in the last year. That's, that's been very difficult on them navigating, the, obviously, the state law. And, you know, some coaches I've talked to have been flat out said, oh, I'm calling the governor up. And <laughs> there's some of the few people that can do it and, you know, getting the law changed or, what do you mean I can't do this? Well, that, that's your law. But, I mean, the other thing with them is there's no real penalty associated with anything, for good or for bad. So some states have, you know, reporting disclosures. And I know I, I came across that in the last year. You know, well, whose job is it to report to the school the deal? Is it the company's job to call the school up and say we're entering into an agreement with the student athlete? Is, is it their agent? Is it the student athlete themselves? And then what happens if the deal doesn't get reported? You know, and I, I know I've had – Schools, quite honestly, tell me that's not a requirement in our state. I've called them up and say, hey, just, just you know, we're doing a deal with your student athlete. And he, nope, don't want to hear about it. Mm-hmm. Nice to talk to you again, Vic. But please, if you go any further, I'm going to hang up on you because I don't want to mm-hmm. know about the deal. I don't need to know about a deal. And boom, and I've other states, uh, other schools tell me, well, this is the third time he hasn't reported the deal. Uh, you know, I got to go tell coach. Like, You're really going to go suspend a kid for not reporting? Well, it's the law, so it's our policy. So. I was like, well, that, that's up to you guys. But that, that, that puts everybody in a, in, a, in a tough situation. So, you know, I can see some of the states kind of, you know, evening out and lo- loosening their restrictions or, or even, to use our term for before, given interpretation, what, what really needs to be done and, and, and what's important in this space. Uh, but, you know, it might be one of those things where we never have a level playing ground. Yeah. In that, well, that was, was lost. 
that that brings up a, a kind of another interesting point is around this topic of what NIL has done for realignment talks, right? And you know, when when you're talking about you know, you spend a lot a lot of time at the Pac-12, obviously some some pretty high profile news around the Pac-12 in the Big Ten and institutions, you know, changing conferences there. Um you know, that 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 idea of eleven level playing field is seemingly getting further and further away, right? So, I mean, aside from just the general, again, we can talk about UCLA and SC and whatever, you know, what other things or how do you see NIL continuing to impact some of these realignment conversations as we move into the next, I mean, this is probably, you know, the next five to 10 years, most likely. Yeah, I think it goes to whether we can balance this student athlete versus employee thing. And I mean, the big 12 commissioner has kind of been very forward thinking, I think to say, we're going to have to have that conversation sooner rather than later that, you know, we're going to have to incorporate some of these things in some sort of revenue sharing or, or how do we, you know, let them be more active in uh, exposing their NIL rights. And I, I spoke to a school a few months ago that officially talking to them, they were very much like, we're not facilitating deals. That's not our role. We're here as a conduit, make sure everybody buys the rules. And, the end of the day I was there, you know, they looked at me and they said, yeah, we got to figure out a way to facilitate deals because you got other coaches out there. So, you know, so I've had that a lot in my career too, you know, just say, you know, I've gotten the official company line. Then, you know, after, you know, a day of talking to them, you know, you, you get the real line, which, you know, it, it is. And we do have to find a way to make this all marriage and, and work together. But uh, yeah, realignment's been slowly moving forever. You know, from the last go round, we've always heard rumblings that, you know, in my old position, talking to a lot of people that, it was a matter of time before these shoes dropped. I don't know if anybody really saw, you know, those two, the two LA schools jump into the Big Ten. I mean, my thing too, from an NIL point of view, is, you know, I don't know if USC and UCLA are very attractive from an NIL point of view as a student athlete. Yes, they got collectives. Yes, there's a lot going on. But I mean, you look at Caleb Williams out there, great quarterback. I'm not out there anymore, you know, day to day, seeing what's going on. But if you're a company, you guys are you're an NIL company, you have the opportunity to sign Caleb Williams to a deal or Matt Stafford. You know, what what quarterback are you going after? You know, there's mm-hmm. 10, 15. It's a pro very crowded space. It's, yeah, extremely crowded space with a lot of options as opposed to, you know, Tuscaloosa, uh, Columbus, Ohio, you know, Ann Arbor, Michigan. You know, you're, you're kind of owning the space right there and you're getting a lot more bang for your buck getting, you know, one of those quarterbacks – uh, that really resonate with the community and, and where, you know, college sports is, is the king of the mountain. So uh, I know everybody always said, like, you know, those schools, Rutgers, you know, the big city schools were going to really, you know, rule the NIL rule, world. And I always thought it was going to be the opposite. The smaller markets were going to be able to take advantage and, and get more quality deals for their student athletes, even those lower ones for the local restaurants or businesses that, excuse me, just kind of want to be part of it. So, uh yeah, it's interesting from that point of view, but it, those are all about TV money and, and how that, mm-hmm. you know, equates to it and bringing more eyes to the screen and, and you know, just shuttering at all competition. So it's going to be some, we're going to see some, you know, the rich getting richer. And, and I've been told by a, a number of Power Five, you know, ADs in the last 10 years that we're really more like a group of five school, but we just happen to be in this conference for forever. So we're, we're stringing yeah. along and, and football rules the roost, and as we all know that. What's also interesting is, is the NCAA doesn't see a penny from college football. You know, they, they don't control the playoff. They don't control the bowl structure, any of that. That, that yep. goes right to the schools. So 
that's something that, you know, when I tell a lot of people out in the public, they don't, they never realize that, that, you know, college football is really handled. Basketball is a whole other story. Uh, but, yeah, that, that, that football world is all into itself. Well, I, I, uh, I, I know we're coming up against time. I, I just want to say a couple of things uh, as we have a compliance enforcer on here, former compliance enforcer on here. Uh, I had a lot of really good friends that I worked with that were in the compliance office. I always used to joke with them that they were, when they came around, they were like the Grim Reaper. It was like, man, I just want to have fun. I want to post something fun on social media. You always have to turn me down. I know at the end of the day, they had a job to do just like I did. Um, but I always said, and this was prior to NIL, that compliance officers have had had the toughest job in the department. There's so much pressure on them from coaches constantly hounding them. How are we getting this guy eligible? What are we doing? How are we getting him through? What are we doing? There's pressure from parents. There's pressure from the students. And then there's pressure from the NCAA to follow the rules and do what they're supposed to do. On top of that, they're also supposed to self-enforce a lot of things. And... I mean, I can't imagine what that's like, because ultimately, if, if you don't self-enforce and you don't report something that you saw going on, your, your school may have a larger penalty at the end of the day. Uh, and so there's just a lot of stuff that they go through that's really difficult. They have to make really hard decisions and sometimes be that bad guy. And now they have NIL on top of all that stuff, <laughs> yeah. which is like literally an entire another job. And nobody knows what they're doing. So all you compliance officers out there, you know who you are. Thanks for all you do. I know it's a difficult job, uh, but I just had to get that in there. I never really thought about the NCAA side of it, Vic, but I feel for you guys too. So thanks for what you guys did too. Oh, totally echo those sentiments. Yeah, and when NIL was first coming out, it took a lot of calls from compliance people that said, just don't – not on my plate. And it, yeah, anytime <laughs> something new comes out, it just always rolls downhill to compliance. And it's just yep. – you know, and kind of just, you know, real quick, just two ones, you know, similar stories. When, when I first went out, and was doing meetings and sitting with coaching staffs and whatnot, you know, uh, it was when text messaging was still illegal for football coaches to do. And oh, I was in a room with an, with an entire coaching staff and just, hey, guys, what do you think about texting? Should you guys be allowed to do it or not allowed to do it? What are your feelings? And it broke out to a full-flooded debate for about 15 minutes where I just sat back and let the coaches go at it. And there was some <laughs> that we have to have texting. It's, you know, yeah. it's 2015. Why can't I text the kid? It, Another group, absolutely not, don't want to text. Texting is an immediate form of communication. So if I'm sitting at a dinner table and a kid texts me, I have to respond to him. I don't want to do that. And so finally a coach just stops and looks at me and goes, damn, Vic, you've got a really tough job. You've got to do this for 130 schools, and we can't get five guys in, in the same room to, you know, get on the same page. And then, you know, kind of similar thing, too. I, I did a meeting, and. And uh, with the whole staff and the head coach goes, I'm going to introduce you, but I got to run and do a hit on ESPN. So I got to step out, but then I'll come in. But feel free to talk to my staff, whatever you need. They're a great, open, and honest staff. We do things the right way, which every coach always said, and 99% of them do. Uh, so he introduces me. We get going. He leaves. We start talking about summer camps, when summer camps was a big thing. And finally, a coach looks at me and goes, Vic, these things are the worst thing in the world. I hate them. I don't like my whole June taken away. Blah, blah, blah. These are the worst. They don't do anything. They don't move the needle recruiting. Have a really good discussion. Coach comes back in and he goes, what are we talking about? And I said, oh, we're talking about summer camps. And he goes, Vic, I got to tell you, summer camps are the most powerful tool we have in the recruiting. <laughs> we need them. I don't know of a more important tool we have. And the coach who was just arguing me for 10 minutes about how bad they were said, that's exactly what I was just telling him, Coach. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> more camps. <laughs> and, I was like, 
And he yeah. grabbed me afterwards and said, I, I, that's the boss. I got to do it. And, you know, you <laughs> understand exactly what compliance people have to deal with all the time. A hundred percent. I love it. Well, man, I, I feel like this could be a series in and of itself. Uh, again, you know, so many fascinating uh, considerations, uh, competing priorities, really appreciate your perspective. I feel like, at least for me personally, this is like one of the fastest. I'm like, oh, damn, we're already at the time. <laughs> um, so I, I really appreciate the time, uh, the experience, the insight, uh, the conversation as well. I know our listeners will um, really enjoy this uh, as well. So uh, this is it for another episode of the NIL Show. I am Adam Cook signing off for Sean Ellenby and Stephen Farrick. We will see you guys next time. Hey, everyone. Adam Cook from Campus Inc. in the NIL store. Just wanted to say thanks again for listening and joining us on this journey. And as a reminder, if you ever need any teamwear, custom merchandise, rec or youth league jerseys, uh, fraternity and sorority wear, or company merchandise, we're always here for you. You can find us at campus.inc. And of course, for all your NIL needs, nil.store.